Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Leslie Gist. Uh, you're listening to The Gist of Freedom. Tonight we have Fern Luskin and Julie Finch. They will be talking about the Underground Railroad and a project they've been working on to preserve. Are you on the line? Yes, I am. This is Fern, and uh, Julie can join us later at 8.30. She's in, in the middle of class right now. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, just give uh, give our audience, because you've been on before, uh, just take us back to the beginning of um, our conversation and what this uh, project is about, the address, location, you know, just right. the details. Well, what it's about is trying to preserve the uh, really the only documented underground railroad station site in Manhattan. And it used to be owned by James Sloan Gibbons and um, Abby or Ab- Abigail Hopper Gibbons. And it's, they were very famous uh, and important Quaker abolitionists. And they, their house, well, actually they had two houses on West 29th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. And, uh, uh, but the one that we're talking about is 339 West 29th. Um, but they used to also own the one next to that, which would be 337. And it's at 337, actually, where um, Isaac Tatum Hopper, Pappy's father, who was very important in the Underground Railroad, you know, the Underground Railroad movement, where he was cared for at the end of his life. You know, he had a terminal illness. He was cared for by Abby and uh, her sister, who lived in uh, 335. That's pretty nice. And what period was this? What what time period are we talking about? The 1850s. They owned both houses at the same time there for a little while. So, uh, but I believe they moved into the 339 location uh, in 1854. And how long had uh, slavery ended in New York? How long had it been? Well, it hadn't. Uh, I mean, uh, because until... Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. That was declared by President Lincoln, and that was the first time slavery was ended. Um, mm. I think we have a, a little uh, disagreement with that. In the North, oh. it had ended before the proclamation. Some years. Okay. Well, so 20 what, years. Yeah, it had. I, I, I may have misspoken, but 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 but. Uh, uh, slaves could be recaptured 
you know, if they were found here in New York, if they were right. found by their by their slave owner. Right, right. That you're talking about 1850. They passed a law saying that you didn't need a warrant um, to accuse someone of being a runaway. So that was a fugitive slave law of 1850. So let's go back to this, how did you guys get involved? Uh, how did you first learn about this house? Well, because I was sitting on the roof top of my house, which is a few doors over, and I saw all of a sudden that uh, there was an, an addition sprouting up on 339, and steel girders were being erected. I didn't know what was going on because all these houses, uh, have been the same height. They're row houses, four-story row houses. So they've been the same height in all the years I've lived here. And this was going to be very ugly, you know, this this addition with this uh, one house sticking out like a sore thumb, possibly two, three-stories addition, it looked like to me, that they were intending to build. So I just, I did... Oh, research to find out what what the history of this block was because my neighbor had told me that it used to be called La Martine Place and it and that was the name of the block in the nineteenth century. That it was an historic block and there had been an article about it in the New York Times. So Do you know much that, about that name? About that history? Well it was named after Alphonse Lamartine who was a Frenchman famous and, and you know, at that time period, and so that's why they named Buck after him. So, um, so armed with you know that information, I went off to the New York Historical Society, and there I found um, it was it's like the predecessor of the telephone book. So it has everyone listed in their occupation and their address. So I knew that the Gibbonses lived at. Well, that they, it looked like they had two, you know, they lived both at 18 Lamartine Place and 19 Lamartine Place. So that's 337 uh, and 339 West 29th Street is what it's called now. But, you know, I didn't know which house it was because um, because the numbering is different, you know, 18 and 19 Lamartine Place. I didn't know which houses those were on 29th Street. Mm-hmm. But the New York Historical Society had a map. It was from the 1870s, and on this map, it had both the Lamartine Place building numbers and the 29th Street numbers. And that's when, you know, my nirvana moment was that I realized, oh, my God, the house that this owner is building the addition onto is the very house that was owned by uh, the Gibbonses. Wow. So how did you feel when you discovered that? Who did? Who was the first person you shared your information with? <laughs> oh, God. Well, that was like five years ago. I don't <laughs> I, I, You know, I guess my neighbors, my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so who was the first person that showed interest in what you had discovered? Do you remember? How did you... How did you, how did Julie and Fern get together, start working together? Well, because someone on the block told me that I should contact the Hudson Guild, and so I did. And um, 
what her name, Rosa Torres or something like that. Anyway, mm-hmm. but she she told me that I had to get the block involved. So I had a little, like, block party or informational session, you know, because the, all these houses were designed in 1846, 1847, and they all had, they used to all have front yard gardens. So, you know, luxury in New York, but we have these gardens, so that's where I held the first meeting. And um, and so, you know, then I compiled a list of my neighbor's emails, and, you know, I used to put petitions up on everyone's front door. I sent it to the mayor. Um, and I wrote letters. I, You know, once I learned the history of the whole block, I, I sent letters to the planning commissioner, and who actually she answered me back, a nice letter, you know, Amanda Burden. And I sent one to, of course, to the Landmarks Preservation Commission, Commissioner, um, and to the Department of Buildings, too. So that, that, and then I, 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 well, I guess it was Rosa Maria Villatorre that told me to go to Community Board 4, or maybe one of my neighbors told me to do that. So that was the next move. Um, what was the turnout like? At that first meeting? Um, at that first meeting, well, you know, I got, I don't know, maybe eight friends, neighbors to go to the meeting, or maybe a little bit more. But it was, yeah, it was a late meeting, and so that was pretty good. And how oh, many people the, on your block? How many people? Well, they were all from my block. I mean, how many people did you solicit uh, or invite to come to this meeting? How many homes? Uh, let's say you know every building that was on, that's on the block. That's about so, thirty blocks, thirty buildings on one block. Yes, yeah, typically I would hand I would hand out about twenty five petitions. Okay. So yeah, it was something like that. So that was a pretty good turnout, one third. And how many of them are still in this fight with you today? They're all. How many are in what? How many people are involved with your um, fight? I know you, uh, Fern, and Dooley are, but how many other people can you count on that has been with you uh, from the beginning? Everyone that's on the email list is still on it. And so, and now, um, you know, we've gathered up more energy uh, because now we have some people a little bit further away, like on 23rd, Leslie Doyle has joined in to help. And who is Leslie? Well, she's involved with the Democratic Reform Club and, oh, what's the name of the organization? Save Chelsea, I believe it's called. And, uh, and she's, she also teaches at the Chelsea Lab School, so um, she has brought her kids over uh, to 29th Street, and, you know, I both Julie and I, or uh, just me this year, um, you know, gave a little guided tour to the kids. It was great. So she's kind of involved, and then also um, um, Kathy Clayman, she's my immediate next-door neighbor. She really wants to get involved, too, and so she sent a petition to uh, Christine Quinn, but I don't think Christine Quinn responded. 
Well, Who's she wants to be the next mayor. She she's uh, the the head of the uh, she's the speaker of the city council. Okay. And um, how often do you meet, and what year did this begin? This began, well, it's five years ago, a little over five years ago. But okay. So, so for like the first year, let's say, I was doing this alone. But then, but then when I started to uh, share, you know, this my plight with um, with Community Board Four, that's when I met Julie. And then she came into it, you know, like a ball of energy. So <laughs> great. And, and and how often do you guys meet? It's not regular, you know. But 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 um, but I became very good friends with Julie. So you know, we talk a lot. <laughs> and oh, okay. So you know, we we update each other, I guess, every week. And um, how much time is this? I was just wondering, trying to get the audience a sense of how much time. Do you really put into this fight in the last five years? The, you know, I, I just heard you said you have an email list, and are, are you on your computer or working at this once a week, once a month, only when something comes up? You know. Well, first of all, I did. You know, two, it took me two months to figure out who, you know, that the Gibbonses owned that house. And then, and then it took me some more time to find the documentation that this of an eyewitness account of it being used as an underground railroad station. So the research alone took me a long time. But but then, ever since then, I mean, it has consumed an enormous amount of both Julie's and my time. And I mean, you know, just we have put together two press conferences. Um, Assemblyman Gottfried and Senator Dwayne and um, Andrew Berman, who's an important preservationist, and the Historic District Council. We we all put on these um, two press conferences, and we did all the organization. And and Julie also did the catering too. Oh, okay. Because in her former life, she was a pastry, you know, a pastry chef. But um, so, and we all, and I've also, you know, had a long-term involvement with one of the tenants in in the house. She's living in this wreck of the house uh, because, well, you know, it's only half built, and now the owner is doing nothing, and in fact, is fighting us. He, he hired a fancy lawyer to um, because he, he still wants to appeal the decision of the Department of Buildings to remove the illegal addition. Okay, so you saw this addition going up. Yes. And you and you were able to stop it, or you you stopped it in the middle of the construction. How far had it gone before you saw some action, some success well, on your end? It had started, and um, it was, see, each time I could get the attention to the media, that whenever there was a newspaper article, finally the, the Department of Buildings would 
do something and send an inspector out. But they just ignored me and then Julie until, you know, there'd be a newspaper article. So, and then, um, so I'm trying to think. So did they, com- they actually completed the edition? Well, then... In 2009, May 2009, they did start building again, even as Julie and I were being awarded, given this a preservation award by the Historic District Council. You know, that very day, the owners were building again. They had resumed. Somehow, they had gotten uh, a new building permit, despite all the violations and illegalities. So then we had fight all over again, and then um, well, it was December 2010. Um, I'm pretty sure it's December 2010. Uh, no, in November 2010, they started building again, even though um, it was a t- it, building was supposed to be, you know, absolutely. Uh, forbidden. And at, at this point, you see, Julie had gotten into a very bad car accident, so... But finally, you know, I... <laughs> yeah, there she was recovering in Maine, and, and I called her, and then we both... So she was working it on the phone, calling um, the Council of the Landmarks Preservation Commission, and um, our assemblymen and other people. She's constantly on the phone with them, and I was documenting this this work that was going on. What the owner was doing, he was cheating and deceiving uh, the Department of Buildings. He, they, all he was allowed to do was fireproofing, and you know, fire safety. And instead, what he was doing was surreptitiously building the new apartments. In the well, let's say allegedly. No, I will say definitely. I I have <laughs> I, I I have the photographs to prove it. And I was going to ask you. So when you say you were documenting, you were taking pictures, and were you videotaping? I well, I how I, close did you get I, to the property? I don't want to say. <laughs> okay. But, but I have the photographs. Let's put it that way. Were you afraid? Were you in a disguise? <laughs> that was I in disguise? Yes, how far did you I, go? I, you know, this guy could, you know, I'm sure he's very angry, so I, you know, I can't reveal my secret. <laughs> okay, okay, the life of a preservationist. <laughs> okay. But, but the photos are, you know, time-dated. <laughs> it's very clear, and there's a chronology of what he did. There was nothing there, no internal structure, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, in November and December, at the very moment that the Department of Buildings um, ordered him, in fact, to to tear it down, he was, uh, you know, furtively uh, building these apartments. Now, how did this tenant get uh, uh, get involved and was able to move in? And how do you, I, I couldn't you, hear you. There's a tenant that's living in this um, illegal Two dwelling tenants. that he added, this addition. Two tenants, yes. How did they move in if it wasn't completed or if it's not No, no, no. I mean, 
no, the building is, it's just the addition is not quite complete. So on the fifth story, the rest of the building is, is there. It's gutted. It doesn't look like it looked in the 19th century, but it's still, the building is intact. Mm-hmm. You know, the old brick walls, there's, the old bricks are still there. Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier something about the tenant. I'm trying to understand what kind of conditions. Horrible, horrible. So there was, in fact, um, now in January we had, um, Julie had gotten um, a landmark sign. And um, so in uh, in January, on the eve of Martin Luther King Day, we um, unveiled the sign. And so... Um, Jennifer Cunningham wrote two articles in the Daily News about it. Um, and the one was about the landmarking unveiling. It was, if your uh, listeners are interested, it was uh, called Brownstone, I don't know, yeah, Brownstone Honored for Place in History, uh, okay. January 16th. And, and then what was the name of the newspaper again? The Daily News. All right. And then on January 29th, she wrote an article called Historic House, an Old Wreck. And in that article, it talks about, you know, the deplorable uh, conditions that the tenants are living in. I mean, including uh, flooding, uh, leaks um, and, and from the roof, and also in radiators that don't work, and... Um, and squirrels that are living up in the illegal addition and, you know, doing damage. Um, and and now, also, there's this horrible, huge, the mammoth um, sidewalk shed and scaffolding. And uh, it's sort of, it's decrepit now because it's, you know, it's five years old, over five years old. And, you know, homeless people are hanging out there, and it's, it, it, you know, it's kind of falling apart, and it's not safe, not well lit. This is a terrible uh, situation for you guys, because the block looks very nice from all the pictures. Um, I know. I have a video up from um, NBC uh, about mm-hmm. your your, um, your quest to have this place um Restored or maintained as a historical site. Now, out of all the people on the block, it says about 25 people that could get involved. What about your personality, you think, and let's start with your childhood, that would make you be the one to wage this battle? Oh, no. You know, did you, did you do. My mother was very strong. She was a strong type, and, you know, and in my community, people fought. What was right? I remember we we were very upset by this uh, incinerator that was going to be built right near us. So you know my whole neighborhood got involved. But but you know as an adult, I'm an art and architectural historian, so it's right up my alley. So oh. the owner had no the idea. The owner is, we is very lucky it. to have you as a neighbor. I know he feels that. <laughs> he loves me for it, I'm sure, but what well, luck. <laughs> so I uh, you know, that's how I figured out who lived there. And also, you know, I and uh actually a friend of mine, uh, uh 
Kathy Santor. She's also an an architectural historian, and she, we both looked at the plans, and, you know, we figured out certain illegalities about them. Now, this may uh, uh, be a deviation from the topic, but what is an architectural historian, and, you know, what is a life like, a, a routine life and a job or, or a career of a historian, architectural historian life? Well, it's not usually like mine, but <laughs> mm-hmm. except there are certain ones that do uh, architectural preservation, like um, I think his first name is Andrew Dolcard, which is at Columbia, and he was just on a panel, as a matter of fact, with Julie um, at MoMA, you know, Museum of Modern Art, uh, about, because she used, she used to live in Soho, and, and she was instrumental in preserving uh, Soho in the fight against Robert Moses's expressway, which would have, you know, dissected the whole community. So, um, and so there's, yeah, there's a few architectural historians that do that, but mostly, I guess, you know, we teach. So, so what do you I, teach? What is what what is the core curriculum like that you have to, you know? I you know. I I teach at LaGuardia Community College, so I and I I'm the only art historian there, really. So I teach um, everything. <laughs> I uh, now I know the flat iron is very popular. Uh huh. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that building? Uh, that's just, mm, Is that part no, of your... No, not really, you know. Okay, uh, so give me an example. Truthfully, I am a Renaissance person, so, uh, you know, I kind of got into the 19th century by accident because of this problem okay. on my block. Okay, tell us a little bit about the Renaissance. What If we were to sit in your class this September, what would get you the most excited about your curriculum. Oh my God, that's that's very tough. Well, I guess I would have to say Venetian art because that's where I focus, you know, my research, and I've come up with discoveries and, and you know about uh, Titian mostly, and there's another Venetian artist, Giorgione. So it's a lot of fun for me. I you know I solve these puzzles about the meaning of these paintings. And that's what I like to share the most with my students. And I, um, you know, and I, and I even ask them for their uh, observations about the paintings. I mean, with dirty eyes staring at a painting, sometimes you see details that that you hadn't noticed before. Hmm. Okay. And, but all right. So, architect. But when you went to school for architecture, what happened in your life to influence you to take that as a major? What? How were you influenced to major in architectural history? Well, mostly I'm an artist, you know. Just I do architecture, but mostly I do more paintings and sculpture. Um, oh, and actually, too. yeah. So I used to, I used to be an artist. So I just don't have time to do it anymore. All I can, all I have time to do is photography now. But um, wow. That's that's how I started, but then I realized that hey, I love history, you know, like you do. So 
So yeah. I, this is the way I could combine the two. Right, right. And I do, too. I, I, I'm starting to appreciate the building, you know. Um, like, I, I, I love those homes and, and how they made the, the safe havens and the different compartments and hiding places. And mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, extremely um, incredible. And it took people like you, right, architects, to get involved. Well, I'm and not an architect. I just study the study history it. of architecture and, you know, and the, the style of the buildings and that sort of thing. Right. Are there any styles that lend itself to the Underground Railroad homes? Do you see any patterns? Well, first of all, they're, you know, they're secret, so they're, we don't usually know where they are but <laughs> okay right that's, true. <laughs> that's very true. Well, they don't and they don't exist this this is the rare one that does exist although it has been altered on the outside of it um you know these people uh the husband was a banker so you know he had you know he had means he had money um and so they you know it's a very nice as you said it's a very nice row of houses Really beautiful, um, and and an oasis in New York City. I mean, you don't get that in the middle of Manhattan, where you have these gardens in the front of the houses. Now, I see it's the whole block used to be that way. Now it's just half the block. Wow! Since they were all. When did this start? When when did they start doing this uh, uh, construction? Eighteen forty-six. No, I mean, when did they start making this terrible transformation? Uh, well, I, that that was what they did five years ago. I think that's when they started the defacing of the brick. For some reason, and they removed building, it. The building that you're fighting is the very first one that they started with five years ago, and they've and they've yes. done it. Well, it's and, the only. It's, yeah, that's the one that we're talking about. I mean, the the other buildings that were demolished or change that was the first thing that happened was I think in about 1922 when the French hospital was built in the middle of the block so you know a number of the, those houses the row houses were destroyed then and then others they allow they used to, the city used to allow additions in the front of the building so on the on these row houses that are like on the east half of the block, a lot of them have additions in the front, and they no longer have the gardens. But originally, see, they were all built at the same time by these. Their names were Mason and Tory, and it was like a development, and they all looked kind of alike. Right, and, and they all uh, had uh, gardens okay. in the back as well. A garden in the front and a garden in the back. That that sounds lovely. Now, since what attracted you to this block? How did you even purchase this home? How did I what? How did you even purchase the home? How did oh, how did I you purchase? I didn't. I don't. I I don't have <laughs> those kind of means. No, I rent. All right. Well, how, how did how did you discover this rent this the the, the building to rent? Uh, well, my friend, actually, uh, the woman I mentioned before, she lived here, and uh, and we went to the same school, you know, studying art history, so she told me about it. It was an available apartment, so that's how I found it. Okay. 
yourself, so you wasn't really attached to it by the art or the garden. No, I mean, I've never even seen it before. I, well, but then, you know, but now I love it, and I, I like to sit in the garden and do my work here. That's nice, that's nice. And um, has any other construction taken place on any of the other buildings on your block? Well, it's funny you ask that because um, at the end of the block, just now, the Department of Buildings gave the owner permission to, I'm not sure what they're doing, but they gave them permission to do an external staircase and to me it seems like it's going to impinge on the sidewalk and it, it I think it put the uh, the current business out of business. That building was um, La Martine Hall and, and that was famous in its own right. It had something uh, there was some riots uh, well, mm. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was trying to save those questions about history for Julie, but it seems like she's uh, she hasn't called in yet. Um, do you want to talk a little bit <clears throat> about the Givens and um, anything else you want to wrap up or say to the audience as far as, uh, you know, asking for help and how how can someone get in touch, touch with you? Well, yeah, we need help. Because I'll tell you, um, the owner's uh, brother, yeah, I mean, excuse me, the owner... He died on this, on Christmas Eve. The owner and, of your building? No, the I'm sorry, the owner of 339 West 29th Street of the Hopper Gibbons house. He died on Christmas Eve. Wow. And right, I know. And uh, so his brother inherited it, and his brother hired a fancy lawyer a very powerful lawyer who specializes in this kind of case to um, fight us further and to to petition um, the what the the uh, board of standards and appeals ruling. He's trying to petition that to allow him to build after all, even. Though, um, you know, he is absolutely not allowed to. Uh, The building has failed two audits, saying that... Why are they demanding to build? What is the big deal? What Will this uh, make them... uh, Will this give them more money? Yes. They can uh, add more tenants. Yes. Yes. And so the money that he's losing to hire a lawyer is worth... What he thinks he can get back if he apparently. gets apparently, and mm. he does very big projects in um, in Queens, very big building type of enterprises. So you know he he has money. Uh, so I guess. So why he is he picking care. on little people like you? I I don't know. He's you know, a, little tiny, a little tiny block like yours, and right. He doesn't care at all about the history, or at least his brother didn't. His brother said um, something like, uh, you know, I'm not... 
I'm not, oh, you have to ask Julie. Now I forgot the quote. But something like, um, I'm not building anything in my basement. <laughs> he has no understanding of the Underground Railroad or, you know, what it means. Or, oh, okay. He couldn't I, I, care less. Well, have you guys tried to have a nice sit-down dinner and talk to him one-on-one? Especially the brother, maybe, you know, if you no. decide to dedicate something to the brother. No, we haven't, and I'd rather he not even know who, you know, what I look like or anything. Oh, okay, right, right. we got to get he, he, was, to he got very angry, the brother, now deceased, got very angry at my assemblyman. See, assemblyman Gottfried has been instrumental in our fight, and um, and he, the, the brother, uh, got very angry at assemblyman Gottfried. Um, but anyway, what I started to say was, so, yeah, we need help because, um, we, Kathy Clayman, whom I mentioned, is my neighbor who is, um, you know, trying to help us now. She tried to get, um, a lawyer to, to help us pro bono, and, but he, I don't know, for whatever reason, he did nothing on it and is not going to do anything on it, so... We do have, um, through the Historic Districts Council in Manhattan, um, uh, the ability to fundraise. Because, um, you know, if anyone wants to donate to help us, you know, or if anyone wants to help donate to the Historical Districts Council, and then they put in the memo line of the check, Friends of Hopper Gibbons, out underground railroad site, then it's a, you know, charitable donation. Well, we have uh, on the line Julie. Julie, are you there? Yes, I'm Great. here. Great. Um, I think we we held up pretty good while we were waiting for you. We <laughs> talked about a lot. <laughs> um, let us start with you, and, and we'll hear the same um, story, but from your vantage point. Could you just go back and tell us how you got involved with this uh, project to preserve? From the beginning? Okay. Okay. Um, I went to Quaker meeting, and this young man named Lawrence Brummer said, made an announcement at the end of our church service, Quaker meeting, saying there was an Underground Railroad building um, owned by Quaker abolitionists, and people needed help getting it landmarked. So I went over and spoke to him. And then I went to community board meeting, number four, the Landmarks Committee, and then he and I talked. I Then I met Fern at one of those committee meetings, and um, Fern and I talked a little bit, and I think I'm taking too much. Is this too much detail? No. No, okay. this is what we need. The Good. more details then, you have, the more friends you can possibly make. Okay, so then Lawrence Frummer and I said, I said, well, let's call the politicians. And um, I had already said at the committee, uh, Landmarks Committee of Community Board 4, I'm compressing it, and there were several, two couple of meetings, and Fern wasn't there at one meeting. And I said, well, we need help. Can any of you on the committee help us organize this? And the chairman, Ed Kirkland, said, well, Julie, it looks like you're going to have to do it. 
<laughs> so, um, so can I can you said, go back we, just a minute, Julie? How did you how did you uh, come about going to the Quaker meeting? Because I, I go to Quaker meeting every Sunday. I'm a Quaker. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about Quakers in Manhattan. Um, well, in Manhattan, um, our Quaker meeting is silent. Uh, there's a meeting at 15th Street um, on Rutherford Place, which is 15th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. And we Quakers believe that it's very important if there's an injustice, if there's something that's not fair, that we have to bear witness, that we have to stand up and do something about it. And, okay, go ahead. And, I'm gonna and Isaac, Isaac Hopper and his daughter and son-in-law, Abigail Hopper-Gibbons and um, James Sloan-Gibbons, were Quaker abolitionists, and at a time when many other Quakers were very uninterested in, in um, the injustice of slavery. But these three people were on the Underground Railroad and and took part in it, were very active in the Underground Railroad because they felt it was the right thing to do, regardless of what other people thought. They stuck their necks out. They were bearing witness. How many generations of Quakers are in your family um um, it, it just goes back to my grandmother, but actually we had ancestors um, who were Quakers, and that gave her the idea to become a Quaker. Um, the ben Benjamin West was a distant cousin of our family. He was a painter in Pennsylvania. That's an awesome story. And uh, anyone in your family involved with this, this fight? With um, with the Underground Railroad? Yeah. Uh, no, they just supported my work on this. So back to um, the organizing. I'll go back to that. Um, right. So Fern, meanwhile, was doing all this research, and um, she and I talked, and I got excited, and then um, um, I continued. Um, I had a stress fracture, so I couldn't work for one month. And um, this is now this is like six months later. So I sat there on my couch with ice on my leg, phoning every preservation group and contacting them by email as well. And I phoned every politician that um, I, could, I knew of and could think of to help us in the struggle. And we really started getting somewhere. And um, meanwhile, Fern, and I asked Fern, well, when can we have a meeting? And she said, well, I'm too busy to have a meeting. I'm, I'm working on my thesis. And um, I said, well, when do you have free time? She said, well, I water the garden every day. And I said, well, what time? She said, 11 a.m. I said, okay, if I come over there tomorrow at 11 a.m., she said, oh, okay. So that was our first mini-meeting. And we took off from there. And I started doing research also. And what did you uncover that you think our audience would be fascinated to hear? Pardon me? What did you uncover that you think our audience would love to hear? Oh, I went up to the, um, well, first of all, Judith Wellman, the fabulous historian, when I kept calling everybody and talking to them, and Fern gave me names of other people, of course. I called Judith Wellman, who does upstate 
um, research and is a specialist in underground railroad sites, um, she said, look, I have a, I have an idea. If you go to the collection of Sydney, um, I think it's Sydney Howard Gay. I can't remember the name exactly. It is, Sydney Howard that's Gay. Right. I think that's right. And if you go, thank you. And if you go up to the Gay collection at the Butler Library in Columbia, you might find something there. And he was, Sidney Howard Gay was active in the um, Underground Railroad movement. He was the um, editor of the National Anti-Slavery Standard newspaper. And and I thought, she she meant that he there might be something about the Gibbons family. And I went up there. I was very timid. I had to write a letter and or I emailed them and, like, can I come to Columbia University to your library, you know? And they said, I made an appointment, and they said, yes, I have to go to the rare books and manuscripts section of the library. And I found letters from Abigail Hopper Gibbons to Sidney Howard Gay's wife describing the fire that was set in their building and how it was set by, by um, the fire was set by, putting together some letters of Isaac Hopper and setting a match to them underneath the sofa, and it described the color of the sofa. And I just, I was so excited, and I went out and phoned Fern on my cell phone and said, look what I found, I found a letter describing the, the ruin of their building. Then I went back another time, or maybe it was the same time, I think I went a couple of times, and I found a record of fugitive slaves in 1855 that had escaped into New York City, and Sidney Howard Gay, as um, William Still did in Pennsylvania, wrote a description of every slave, every freedom seeker that came into the office and he would say, so-and-so arrived on such-and-such such a boat from such-and-such such a state, North Carolina. I found this slave, Sarah Moore, that had been referred to um, Sidney Howard Gay and the Underground Railroad people by J.S.G., I'm sure it was James Sloan Gibbons. And this slave... Um, Runaway slave Sarah had gotten married in the in the Gibbons home, which was the previous home, not on 29th Street. It was on 14th. So it was it was an amazing story, which would take another five minutes to describe. But I was excited, and so I asked them could I Xerox this notebook? They're two little blue exercise kind of composition notebooks. So they said, no, no, it's too fragile. And so they said, we'll make a microfilm for you. So here I was becoming a researcher who was acquiring my own microfilm for $17. And it was the most exciting moment. That's wonderful. Um, where are you now with this project? Where am I now in what? With this project, with the construction. Oh, my gosh. Um, well, we have this huge effort that we're about to undertake um, I've been procrastinating for years. Um, Fern has been really busy with her thesis. Um, and I've been procrastinating getting this Underground Railroad building on the State, Re Na State Historic Register and the National Historic Register. And that is a huge amount of paperwork. But we've done all the research. The Landmark Preservation Commission did a huge amount of research. 
So Simeon Bankoff, who's been our guardian angel, as well as Ed Kirkland and other people, Simeon Bankoff, the head of Historic District Council, said, just bring it over, Julie. And I said, really? It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's a huge amount of work. It's like doing an income tax, um, filling out taxes. You said, no, 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 I'll help you. It won't be that hard. So that's our next part, project. Okay. And you spoke to Jacob Morris. What do you think about uh, his adventure with the Freedom Trail, and do you think it will be able to help you? Well, he is extraordinary. I called him up right away after I read the article, and it was synchronicity, or as some of my African-American friends would say, it was spirit that I happened. I never buy the Wall Street Journal, but I bought it because a relative was quoted in an article in there, and there on the facing page was the um, article by Jacob Morris about him and his um, Freedom Trail I said to him, oh, my gosh, you're you're accomplishing what I've always dreamed of, which is landmarking this other beautiful building, um, a gabled building at the corner of West Broadway and um, uh, White Street, the home of Reverend Theodore Wright, who was very active on the Underground Railroad, who was a minister. And he said, um, it's already landmarked as part of an historic district. But I, what I wanted, of course, is to have it marked on a freedom trail. So I'm so excited that he's doing this. And then we talked about the slave market um, and the slave traders at South Street and where the, the slave ships were outfitted secretly. We had a long talk about that. But that would be another five minutes. Go ahead. Can I interject something? That yes, I hope can. That I hope that, that the... Hopper Gibbons House could be put on that Freedom Trail. I say, let's extend the trail uptown. Definitely. We're New Yorkers. People walk. Yep, <laughs> definitely. And I would include on the Freedom Trail, and I'm not on the, it's not Freedom, but I would include memorials to certain corners where blacks were lynched during the draft riot. One of the corners is a block away from me at 7th Avenue and 27th Street, and that has haunted me because 11 to to 20 blacks were lynched during the draft riots the three days in the summer, July of 1863, and that has been covered up, hidden, not acknowledged until this year. It's on our our historic marker that lynchings took place in New York City during the draft riots. Oh, okay. Now I'm I'm I want to hear about the outfitting. We have about ten minutes. You want to hear about what? The uh, what you and Jacob were talking about, the outfitting uh, of the boats. Okay, I just came to look at the clock. Um, well, there's this uh, young Occupy Wall Street man named Chris Cobb, and there's this historian, this teacher named Alan Singer at Hofstra. And they're both interested in the slave market thing. Um, Chris Cobb wants to market. He wants to have a marker there for the slave market at the corner of Wall Street and I think it's Maiden Lane. Now, this old slave market was in the 1700s where they rented out slaves. But what I was shocked to read in Alan Singer's little booklet 
that I bought at an Underground Railroad conference that Fern and I both went to is that slave traders were drinking in Sweet's Tavern at the corner of South Street and Fulton Street, which is, and that building is part of the South Street Seaport Museum. So I started, I was horrified to read that. I work at the museum. So I started thinking, I love the ships. I love tall, tall ships, square-rigged ships, schooners, whatever. And then I just had this thinking feeling, those ships were at that pier, Pier 16, Pier 15, because those guys were, who were trading and slaves were secretly outfitting those ships. Okay, so I started Googling that and researching it a little bit, and I read that, as usual, New York City, as always, New York City had corruption in it, and there were very few slave traders that ever got caught, even though technically it was against the law, and I don't have the date in front of me, 18... I don't know. 1803? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And so... Some of these ships were being outfitted secretly at the piers right there at South Street, and then they would go down to the Africa and then go to the Caribbean, and some of them would be burned or, or, you know, destroyed after they were at the Caribbean, um, at the islands like Cuba and whatever. But you know, there were a few cases where um, ships did catch them did catch the slave trading ships before they got burned. And the only way they could tell in New York City if they were being secretly outfitted as a slaver was if they packed 300 wooden spoons because that would be for the poor slaves to be eating with when they were on their way on the triangular trade of going down to Africa and then over to the islands. Wow, that's fascinating. yeah, I have a file folder at home with some of the printouts in it. Um, and so I want that to be on a trail, too. I can understand why. Now, before you go, would you like to give out your information? And you dropped a lot of different names of people that I would like to interview. Would you be so kind and Facebook me and, you know, inbox me uh, some contacts so I could get in touch with these gentlemen? Of course, and I can email them to you, or would you like me to tell you again right now? You can uh, email them to me. Okay, Or great. Facebook, or whatever. Okay. My email oh, for you, my email uh, for you in the audience is Leslie. Facebook is great. Facebook okay, is Facebook, great. I'm Leslie Gist, L-E-S-L-E-Y-G-I-S-T. Okay. okay. Now give us your contact information, and what would you want them to send you or how would you want them to help you? Um, I want listening? I want help researching. Um, I want help finishing this project of putting the um, our building on the National Historic Register. That's the first thing. And then we also need help to have people. That Fern mentioned to have people write letters to the mayor saying that. The um, Department of Buildings is has not been going after the owner to tear down the illegal fifth story that's covering right. up the historic roof. But, but I also think we need, um, if there are any lawyers out there that you know would like to volunteer to help us, that that would be helpful. Um, 
because I didn't get to mention that the latest update is that um, the owner is in violation and there will be a hearing because his sidewalk shed and scaffolding permits have expired. Oh, yeah. But, but all the all the inspector said was, well, the remedy is to renew the permit. Uh, well, that's, that's wrong. The remedy is that the fifth story has to come down. It is in um, violation of the Department of Buildings' own laws. Right. Okay, so we have a three. Uh, we have a, a wish list of three uh, wishes, and you want a lawyer. You want someone to help you with your preservationist, and what's your third wish? What is your well, third the wish? Petition, the petition is what Julie said that we need to re-petition the mayor. Also, we need a lot more help um, from the African American community. Uh, I'll be very frank with you. It is white Quaker abolitionists whose who's building it was, but but at that time the Quakers were working along with African American abolitionists together, which was a little rare. Um, and so we need we need to duplicate that effort and have a lot more help from African American people to help us. Have you been to churches? Have you been to butts? Have we church? what? Abyssinian Baptist Church? Have you gone to any of those big churches, historical churches? Oh, that's a good no. idea. The yeah. only thing I did was go to the Mount Morris Historic District people, um, Mount Morris um, Improvement Community Improvement Association. I went to them. But that's a good oh. idea. I'll go to contact Abyssinian Baptist Church. Thank you. Yes, um, I think, you know, mm -hmm. the, the house itself housed... Uh, According to the quote of Joseph Hodges Choate, he was a friend of the Gibbonses. He said he was at the dining room table with the Gibbonses, and he saw and that this house served as an underground railroad station, and that at the table with them were two um, runaway. I'm quoting him: jet black Negroes that were uh, runaway slaves. Uh, you know, running, they were running through their lives to Canada. Right. So it, it is such a sacred destination. It should be a tourist destination. Exactly. It is a hideous eyesore. In any other city, uh, you know, any other city would seek to save this building um, for posterity. Also, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, in I've been in touch with um, the Crown Heights Historic District people, and I, I have to go out there and talk with them. They've been very supportive in a, a in social situation. I and there are electronic and... petitions that you can uh, use through the internet. And I'm That's looking a good at idea. one. And I'm looking at one. Is called one. Um, okay. So you Google yeah. use the electronic petitions. They are very um, effective. Thank huh. you so much. Oh, and anything uh, for you, for you ladies, you uh, you're doing great work. And I didn't Thank remember you. hearing you say you were a Quaker, and and that's very special to me. Uh, um, oh, good. So, so and, oh, you know, good. Thank we'll you talk again. Me. And whenever you need to come back on the show for support, um, you know, give me a buzz, Facebook me, and I will we'll put you two on. 
Thank, thank you so you much, so much Leslie. Leslie. No, bye-bye. Bye-bye and good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.